Hi there, it's Jan Dawson. Just a quick note at the beginning of this week's episode, unfortunately we had an issue with my microphone, especially in the latter half of this week's episode, and you'll note that there's a little bit of clicking when I'm talking. It goes away when I'm not talking, thankfully, so Aaron's side of the audio should be fine. But our apologies for that issue. Uh, unfortunately, it's in the master recording, so there's nothing I can do to remove it at this point. Uh, but hopefully we'll have that issue sorted out by next week. And so our apologies for this week. Hopefully you can still enjoy the episode, even with that audio issue. Thanks. Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and my co-host is Aaron Miller. We're going to do a quick news roundup, as we usually do for you with three news topics. Uh, those topics will be the launch of Apple Pay in China, uh, the uh, decision by the Indian regulatory agency to ban Facebook's free basics program in India um, on net neutrality grounds. And then briefly want to touch on uh, an interview that John Gruber had last week with uh, Eddie Q and Craig Federighi on his talk show podcast and some of the interesting things that came out of that. Uh, and then we'll move on to our two major topics for today. The first one will be our question of the week. And that question is with... Uh, $217 billion uh, in the bank, as it were, quote unquote, why does Apple borrow money as, as they did again recently? And so we'll talk through the ins and outs of Apple's capital return program, uh, why they're doing this, why they have to borrow money to be able to do it and so on. And we'll get into some of the, the US tax policy issues around all of that as well. And then our second major topic, and this is what we'll close with, is the uh, news this week that the Apple is uh, opposing the FBI's order to uh, help it unlock an iPhone. And we'll get into all the details around that. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. And it's my turn this week, and I'll have a movie recommendation for you. So uh, let's kick off with the news roundup. So Apple Pay launched in China um, this week. This is the fifth country that Apple Pay has been in after the, the U.S. and uh, three other countries over the last few months. Uh, China is interesting from the perspective of mobile payments because mobile payments are really big in China already dominated by a couple of additional, uh, existing players, especially by Alibaba and the uh, Alipay technology. Uh, Tencent has its own technology, as do a number of others as well, which are much smaller. Uh, but China finally launched there this week, and uh, the news was that people were very excited about it. Some people had issues adding their cards and so on. Part of that was you know, certain banks didn't support it yet. Part of it was just sheer volume. Um, but they seem to have had a very successful start there. Aaron, any thoughts about all of that? Uh, not a lot other than that I think it's really exciting. I mean, Apple Pay has been a little bit slow in the U.S. I mean, not slow relative to mobile payments generally, but I think slower than Apple and others are expecting. China, you know, being, I, I think China has a chance to be explosive as far as Apple Pay is concerned. I, and it's just going to, if if it is a platform that people really like, it's just going to accelerate iPhone sales over there, which... Um, you know, it helps run counter to the narrative of, of China sales, you know, struggling or being risky because of everything that's happening at the macro level as far as the economy goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and I think, you know, if you think about Apple Pay and mobile payments in general, the two big obstacles are typically lack of awareness and, you know, desire to use these things on the one hand and then lack of available technology to support it. Um, and in China, the lack of awareness issue is non-existent. You know, everybody uses mobile payments already. The biggest challenge is just that the uh, Apple Pay solution obviously requires an NFC terminal, and most of the other mobile payment solutions in China are QR code based. That gives Apple Pay an advantage because it's uh, much easier to use. You don't have to open up an app and scan a code and all the rest of it. You just tap to the reader and, and authenticate it with your thumbprint. 
but uh, it does mean that it's available in far fewer places than some of the other mobile payment solutions. And so that's what will be really interesting is to see whether NFC adoption and that kind of thing by merchants and retailers will uh, take off in China in the way that it's starting to in other countries. And so I think that's the single biggest question at this point is, is how quickly the retailer side adoption takes off. I suspect it's going to be cheaper and easier to do in China to adopt NFC. I mean, I think what makes it harder in the U.S. is you already have pretty sophisticated point-of-sale systems. And so if you're going to be adding NFC payments to it, it makes it a lot more complex. I think Square, having an NFC reader that supports Apple Pay shows that if you're not already you know, invested in these really expensive point-of-sale systems, then adopting NFC can actually be really cheap. And so it won't surprise me if the uptake is faster in China than it is here because they're not as deeply entrenched into, you know, the major credit card issuers into really sophisticated point of sale systems. I I suspect that they're going to have an easier time getting into uh, NFC and therefore Apple Pay. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Okay, our second topic is um, this. Facebook has this free basics program, which is part of its internet.org effort to make the internet available to more people in more countries, especially in emerging markets. And, and free basics basically allows uh, a customer, uh, a cell phone, you know, a wireless customer in one of these emerging markets to access a basic version of free Facebook along with a couple of other services for free. So it's zero rated to use industry terminology. So it doesn't count against a data plan or they don't need a data plan to be able to use it. And it's launched that in a number of different countries, one of which was India. And there's been a debate over the last several months in India about this program and ultimately TRAI, which is the regulatory body in Uh, India has decided to uh, shut down the program there. And so that's obviously bad news for uh, for Facebook in its efforts to uh, to launch this program there. What was your take on all of that, Aaron? Well, my lens on that was mostly through uh, Mark Andreessen's Twitter feed, Mm. (laughs) because he had some unfavorable comments about what happened and ended up saying something about colonialism would have been better or something really kind of thick-headed like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was absolutely lambasted. And and, and Mark Andreessen's a really active... I mean, th- there's clearly a lot going on here that, that has deep cultural significance, not just yeah. the technical significance of whether or not it's um, net neutral. Um, because uh, he's really normally very active on Twitter and uh, had so deeply stepped in it that he hasn't done anything on Twitter for over a week now, mm-hmm. which for him is kind of a deafening silence. I, I think there's a, the, you know, it, the danger, right, with the free basics is it felt like Facebook was trying to essentially take advantage of people, um, right, to take advantage of essentially lower income country um, and I can see why it would have caused such deep offense and frustration. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the whole problem with this zero rating approach is you're saying, and this is a problem with Facebook's internet.org effort is, you know, on the one hand, it's positioned as this wonderful altruistic, you know, good for the world sort of effort to get more people online. But the vehicle that's used specifically is one where Facebook's front and center. And so it's very self-interested as well. And uh, the worry is that people's first experience with the internet is heavily skewed towards, say, Facebook. And, you know, Google has similar programs as well. But it's heavily skewed towards that one specific service. And so it very much biases people's early experience of the Internet and what they consider the Internet to be towards the specific service that's kind of sponsoring it. And so it just creates worries that 
Um, you know, this is a new form of sort of cultural imperialism on the part of Western companies to sort of take over, um, you know, what should be an, an open and, and unfettered access to the internet. The problem, of course, and this is where I think Andreessen's comments came in, clumsy though they may have been, is that there are many people in these countries who simply can't afford access to these things. And so the question is, what's the solution if this isn't it? And I think that's the problem that Mark Andreessen was trying to make. As I say, he made it inartfully, for sure, uh, and uh, really offended people in the process. But, you know, the point is that some solutions got to be put in place to allow people with, you know, not enough income to be able to afford the standard sort of paid rates for these kinds of things to access some of the essential services. And so I'm curious to see how Facebook uh, goes about addressing that problem, how other companies and, and governments in places like India go about addressing that problem going forward, because it is a real problem. And, you know, though the Facebook solution is problematic, uh, it's not clear that there's a better one out there. And so I'm really curious to see how it goes forward. I, I think culturally the biggest problem is that argument of saying these people can't afford Internet if we don't do it is at the heart of, of colonialism from the beginning, right? The idea right. is oh, we as the colonial overlords are making them better off than they would have been without us. But it also comes at a high price. Um, and and that's, that's, the, that's the impression here, right, is that Facebook right. is a is a modern version of American or British imperialism. And that's, and, and it has really strong symbolic value that I think they have been a bit tone deaf to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, our third news roundup topic is uh, John Gruber's interview with Eddie Q and Craig Federighi last week um, about various things to do with Apple, including the App Store, about messaging, um, about iTunes and software and quality and so on in general. What, what were your kind of big takeaways from the interview? What did you think was most significant in all of that? I thought it was the discussion about software quality. Um, Walt Mossberg had just the week before written his piece about Apple's software quality declining he really went after iTunes in that article, and I was really glad that Gruber brought it up. That's what I love about. I think, I think Gruber has done a great job in these interviews he's had with Apple executives of not playing softball with them, right? Um, but also helping them feel like it, like they're not also going to get railroaded by unfair questions. Mm -hmm. He struck a nice balance, I th I've thought, in that regard. And so, bringing up the software quality issue was a chance to, you know, get the executives to stand accountable to the people that are really mad about this, but not in a way that was, you know, crucifying them or pinning them to the wall necessarily. Right. I did think their answers were, I, I mean, you get the feeling that of course they want high quality software and they did a good job conveying that. I mean, they said, uh -huh. that, you know, they, they, both Craig and Eddie said, look, we really care about this. Like we care right. about it. We use these products. This is part of our daily lives and we care about these things too. I thought what was what was missing, however, was um, a recognition that it's not just about crashing, right? There are a lot of software uses issues like iTunes messing up people's music collections. Um, you know, those issues are, I guess they did talk about the fact that those are really complex issues and that is a reality mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, um, but but John Gruber didn't really go after them on that point. Didn't go after the no, kind of iCloud, iCloud and syncing and, and that side of things, which was which was a shame because I, in some ways I think that's the most significant one and where a lot of people kind of throw up their hands and say, how hard could this be? You know, and you know even if the response had just been actually it's really hard and we're getting better all the time, but you know we still have some issues. But yeah, it didn't even get covered that side of things. It didn't feel like. Yeah, it was exciting to hear that a new version of iTunes is coming pretty soon, and yes. uh, I'm curious yeah. what that's going to look like. Yeah, I mean, we've had some discussion about that in the past. In one of our earliest episodes, actually, I was going back this week and looking at, I think it's about episode eight or thereabouts, 
um, you know, what could they do to kind of break it apart? Um, because there's so much in there and yet, you know, there are people who rely on all of that functionality. So to what extent do you break it apart? And, you know, their approach so far has been to say, you know, this is several apps in one essentially, and you just kind of switch whether you're in music mode or movie mode or whatever, and then it makes sense in that context. And it was interesting to hear how, how it makes sense to them, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense to users. Um, some of the numbers that came out of it, I found very interesting too. The sheer volume of iMessages, interesting given our, com our conversation last week about iMessage as a platform. Um, some of the other numbers around uh, active uh, user accounts, I guess it was iCloud accounts, I think 782 million, which is interesting, you know, base of a billion devices, 782 million iCloud users, which is somewhat similar to sort of active individual unique users. Um, you know, it's a really huge base of customers that Apple has at this point, and I'm curious to see how that number continues to grow over time. Yeah, I thought that was a big revelation because I don't, I don't know if I know anybody that has more than one or maybe two iCloud accounts. So I think that's actually a pretty good yeah. representation of actual customers versus active devices. It makes sense. It just the one worry I have about it is it doesn't. There was no mention of active, and so you know, right. if I had a different iCloud account, you know, five years ago, and and don't use it anymore, but you know, never actually deleted it or anything, and does, is that still included? You know, to what extent is that stuff there? And so, you know, with the active devices number they gave, I think there was ninety day active devices, this billion number that they gave on the earnings call a few weeks back. Um, you know, we don't have any kind of qualification on that number, and so that's what I want to see going forward. Is is this, you know, monthly active? iCloud accounts, you know, is this, you know, accounts ever created, you know, what is it exactly? And so right. I'd like to see a bit more clarity around that. Well, in the interest of time, let's move on from our news roundup to our question of the week. And this week, Aaron's done the research on this one and, and come prepared to answer some questions about it. But the, the big picture question is, with all the money that Apple has, you know, this huge cash pile that's talked about very regularly, you know, why is it borrowing money, um, which it has done again recently and has done it several times in the past. So um, let's let's kick off that conversation, Aaron. What's what's the explanation here? Well, so uh, App Apple has all this money, and the the reason that they're borrowing is because they want to give it back to shareholders. Um, and the reasons for this are obvious. Apple's the you know depending on how you measure whether it's real term real dollars or nominal dollars, Apple is at least one one of the most profitable companies ever. Carl Icahn and other uh, more active shareholders have, have pushed Apple for years to create more capital return for shareholders. Um, you know, with all this money, Apple can do two things. Essentially, they can invest in their business or they can give it back to shareholders. Investments are obviously things like capital purchases, research and development, acquisitions of other companies. But the way they return to shareholders essentially comes in two forms. Um, they do it through dividends, where they just hand cash back to shareholders of record. Uh, and then the other option is share buybacks, which the idea behind share buybacks is it increases the, the value of shares to all the shareholders because you're reducing the number of shares out for sale in the marketplace. Um, and so Apple, a few years ago, gave in to, I don't know if gave in is the right word, they decided that it was the right strategy to start giving um, some of this value back to their shareholders, and so they announced what's, what they call their capital return program. It consists of a combination of buybacks and dividends. Um, their target right now that's been set by the board of directors is to return $200 billion to shareholders by the end of 2017. Um, that uh, uh, and, 
so that's obviously a lot of money. Um, the the share buyback part is supposed to be about 140 billion of this total, which would mean around 60 billion in dividends to be paid out. To date, Apple has spent just over 100 billion dollars already on share buybacks, um, and that's since 2013. And they've spent about 35 billion dollars on dividends. Um, so they. So that, that means they have a little over $60 billion remaining um, that they want to return to shareholders over the next, you know, roughly two years. Okay. So they've got that much left. Why aren't they simply giving that away? Where does the borrowing come in? That's a good question because if they have $217 billion in cash, and as an aside, I should mention, this is actually not cash. Um, in fact, the majority of it is – so these are cash, cash equivalents, and marketable securities – um, they, uh, uh, as of their last 10 Q, um, it's actually only $11 billion. They actually have in cash. I say only, man, wouldn't we <laughs> all love to have a bank account with $11 billion in it? Anyway, um, it's 11 billion in actual cash. And then they have things like money market funds, mutual funds, treasuries, um, and other government securities, commercial paper, corporate securities, uh, municipal bonds. They, they've invested in a lot of things. And, and most of these investments they actually consider long-term. In fact, about $200 billion of the 217 they consider long-term investments, which means they intend to hold them for more than a year. So the amount of cash they actually have on hand is, is, is only actually uh, – these, all these others are you know, marketable or, or liquid is the way to mm -hmm. think about it. But right. anyway, um, the reason they don't just give out, the, the reason they don't just sell off a bunch of these securities that they own and then give 60 billion to shareholders uh, is because of us tax law. And, um, right now we're getting into basics that a lot of people know by reading the articles. So I'm, so if you're not familiar with this, this is a great introduction. If you are familiar, I'll try to fill it in with details to make it more interesting. But, um, uh, basically, US, the U.S. government taxes companies on their profits. Profits are measured by gross revenue minus deductible expenses allowed under the tax code. That's The vast majority of business expenses are considered deductible. And so um, accounting profit versus taxable profit, they're usually not terribly far off from each other. The way we do taxes... In the United States of corporate income is with a graduated marginal rate. So the more money you make, the higher your rate becomes as you go on. But at Apple's level of profit, which is over $18 million a year, the tax rate is basically a flat 35%. So that's the, 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 the effective flat rate is about 35% because of uh, how much money Apple is making. So that means for every dollar... Um, for for the for the money Apple makes each year, it, it, it's supposed it's supposed to owe the thirty five percent tax to the IRS. But that's money made in the U.S. Um, the the U.S. government only has legal authority to tax money, to tax profits of U.S. companies or of foreign companies making money in the U.S. And so what that means is that any money made overseas. Um, and that remains overseas is not taxable by the federal government. And Apple makes a lot of money overseas. And it does this through foreign subsidiaries. So Apple Incorporated, based in California, owns a lot of companies that exist in foreign countries. And they do a lot of their business through these foreign companies. In fact, on average, it's over 60% of Apple's revenue that comes in from overseas operations. 
which means most of the money it makes, it makes in other countries besides the U.S. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't make money here. It, it does make a lot of money here, and Apple does pay tax here. Um, according to a congressional testimony they gave, gave a couple years ago, Apple pays around $7 billion a year in taxes to the U.S. government. Um, in fact, as, as an additional amount of perspective, that's roughly one in every $40 the IRS collects from corporate income taxes. So Apple wow. is the largest corporate t uh, income tax uh, payer in the U.S. Right. Now, um, <clears throat> as far as this cash and, and equivalents and other liquid investments go, Apple has about $177 billion of the 217 overseas. It's kept overseas within foreign subsidiaries. Um, their, their Ireland company is one of the big holders of this. Um, there's a misperception that Apple engages in, you know, some of the really, like, uh, uh, the, the really untrustworthy stuff like Cayman Island Holdings and other, you know, like sort of tricks like that. Apple doesn't actually do that. The subsidiaries they have overseas are actually, you know, companies involved in the production and sale of their products. Um, again, that's according to the testimony they gave to Congress. Um, but for Apple to give away enough money to shareholders, if they're going to use their cash, if they're going to use what they have in the bank, they're going to have to bring it back into the U.S. And the moment they do that, it becomes profit to Apple Incorporated based here in the U.S. And that profitable income that comes in from its subsidiaries, um, that, that profit would be taxed at 35%. And that's a really high cost. Um, it, 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 because they're handing over a third of this money that would be coming, and they're handing over a third of it to the to the federal government. And so, this high tax rate, this high cost of repatriating or bringing back this cash, is what makes it cheaper for Apple to borrow money instead of bringing in bringing the foreign money home. Right, right, and, and because ultimately they've kind of used up what they want to use up out of the stuff that's U.S. based at this point, and vast majority of their cash holdings and, and equivalents are now overseas and uh, so it makes it's so it, how much of this is about the short-term kind of borrowing rates and so on I mean interest rates are at kind of all-time lows at the moment you know the the uh, Federal Reserve just raised them ever so slightly but they're still very very low I mean is that a big part of this would the equation be different if interest rates were higher or, or is you know how much are they saving by by taking this approach that's a really good question. There are a few things, obviously, in Apple's favor, not just the lower interest rates, although that's a huge part of it. I mean, for, for companies generally, for anybody generally, borrowing is cheaper than it's been for decades. And has, and and so any of the bonds that Apple would issue right now, because that's how they borrow money is they sell bonds, or, or which are which are essentially notes of debt to the to the people who buy them. And, the, and when these bonds are sold, they're sold with a maturity date and an interest rate. And so the maturity date is sort of the end of time, the, the end by which Apple needs to pay back the amount that was borrowed. And then the interest rate is how much the effective rate is basically how much interest Apple pays on on that debt per year. Um, another thing that makes it cheaper, though, for Apple is not just the generally low interest rates, but also the fact that they're Apple. I mean, they're, they're a cash machine. They make so much money on a really consistent basis. And so that portrays a very, very safe investment um, to bond buyers. And so Apple can can get away with a lower interest rate because they are a much lower risk debt investment. 
um, for for the people that might be buying these bonds. And so, so, so those two things together make this really cheap for Apple to borrow money. It's it's really it, it, it's a lot cheaper than the tax rate. In fact, if we kind of do some rough math on this. So this latest bond issue is going to be around $12 billion. That's the estimate I've read in all this different press, but we don't know exactly the amount until you know Apple goes through with it. The other thing that's important to know is that anytime Apple in the past has done a bond issue like this, they've actually done a mix of bonds when it comes to maturity, date, maturity dates and interest rates. And so doing the math on exactly how much this costs is hard because we don't know, like this with this latest $12 billion, we don't know exactly how much money is going into which bond issue. And so we can't really calculate with exactness how much their cost of debt is going to be in this case. And so just kind of looking over the, 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 the bonds that they were issuing and doing an in-my-head average, if we assume that this $12 billion has an average of a five-year maturity at 3% interest, by the way, I think a 3% interest estimate is high, but it's taking into account some of the higher interest rate bonds that they are selling, because a couple of them are at about a little over 4%. Um, anyway, with a, with a, if we take an average five-year maturity for the $12 billion and a 3% interest rate, the cost of borrowing comes out to about $1.8 billion in order to get the $12 billion in cash to return to shareholders. Um, although Apple, interestingly, has said that it's not just going to be for shareholders, that they might also use it for um, for acquisitions. So there might be a you know some small acquisitions coming out of this as well. But anyway... The cost, the cost of borrowing the $12 billion is, you know, let's say around $1.8 billion total. That compares to a cost of $4.2 billion if they were to take that 12, if they were to take $12 billion in overseas cash and bring it back to the U.S. That On the basis be, of that 35% that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so that means the net savings by borrowing instead of repatriating cash is about $2.4 billion. Um, which is not trivial. So obviously borrowing just makes way more sense for them in this case. If we if we add up the previous outstanding notes, which is around 57 billion that they already owe in other bonds that they've already sold, um, and if we apply roughly the same savings rate, then all told Apple has saved, including this bond issue, Apple will have saved over $13 billion by borrowing instead of repatriating its cash. This is money Apple and its shareholders gets to they get to keep is money that they didn't have to pay to the U.S. Treasury, um, and uh, money that they didn't have to pay to borrowers because they're getting such a cheap interest rate, and that is a lot of money. I mean, especially if mm -hmm. you consider in context of of their quarterly profits. I mean, that's you know, that's a really that's that's a lot of extra cash that Apple gets to keep around, and, and you can see why this is such a fiscally responsible um, way for them to behave. Right, even though it seems crazy on paper to be borrowing money to give away money, as it were, or to buy back shares or to pay dividends or whatever, but you've made you've made good sense of it. Um, does this ever change? I mean, I guess you know, if interest rates were to go up dramatically over the next few years, um, you know, is it likely that the U.S. tax policy might change? You know, there might be some kind of moratorium or a reduction in the rate applied to this kind of repatriated funds. You know, is this just going to be the way it's always going to have to be for Apple? That's a good question. As far as interest rates go, you know, I, who knows? I mean, people are constantly predicting the interest rates are going to shoot up again, although the Fed seems to be working really hard not to, not to let that happen. Um, 
the uh, as far as the corporate income tax is concerned, there, there there's constantly talk, and Apple actually has lobbied for this for Congress right. to do what's called a tax holiday, mm-hmm. where essentially it allows because Apple's not the only one doing this. IBM, Facebook, Google, a lot of other sure. big companies are keeping cash offshore because of the tax rate. And so the argument is, well, let's do a tax holiday. Let's not remove the, the, the income tax or lower it dramatically. Let's just create a temporary holiday where, say, during a you know a three-month period or a year-long period, any, any money that companies bring in from foreign subsidiaries would be either tax-free or, or, or taxed at a dramatically lower rate. And Apple has lobbied for this. And Tim Cook, in his testimony, Congress actually specifically asked for a tax holiday. The problem with a tax holiday is that um, companies can be patient and wait for the next one, right? I mean, once you do one tax holiday, you basically signal to companies that as long as they're willing to build up their foreign reserves to a high enough level, it will incentivize Congress to get that money back into the U.S. And, uh, and so a company like Apple could essentially wait it out every single time and only ever bring the money back through a tax holiday. The, the net effect of this is that, it, it, I think more than anything, and this is where I'm getting on my political soapbox, is that the corporate income tax rate is just too high. I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that as a share of federal revenue, the corporate income tax is not, is, is not by any stretch of the imagination our largest revenue source. Um, there, there, you know, there are a lot of arguments that we ought to just abolish the corporate income tax altogether. And find other ways to cap to to make up for the lost revenue of having done that. Um, the uh, at the very least, we ought to lower it. In the U.S., we have the highest corporate income tax rate of of any developed country, and and that is um, that that's a lot uh, of money that's essentially being incentivized, off, you know, offshore and overseas. Because the because the rate here is higher, if the rate were dramatically reduced, um, opportunities like this for Apple. Now, granted, interest rates are pretty low, so the rate would have to drop dramatically. But but assuming interest rates climb a little bit over time to where they've been more historically, um, a lower a lower corporate rate would mean that uh, income tax rate would mean that Apple and other companies like them would be more likely to bring money back to the U.S. Right. Okay. Well, cool. Anything else that you want to add that we haven't talked about around all of this? Uh, no, I, I mean, it'll be interesting. What's What I'm curious about is what's going to happen after they finish this next capital return program. So there's only, right. like I said, you know, just under two years of it left. And, and it, you know, we don't know what's on it. I mean, we can guess, but we don't know for sure what's on Apple's horizon as far as new products and new revenue sources and how much Apple is going to continue to grow. Right, but there's going to be a lot more. What's interesting for Apple is, you know, they're they're probably going to continue growing and making a lot more money that shareholders will reasonably ask for some of. And right. the and the second thing about Apple is their foreign business is growing really fast, which mm-hmm. means even more of this money is being made yeah. overseas and will be kept overseas. And so, right. the trajectory for Apple is that this situation is probably going to intensify. Um, mm-hmm. rather than diminish in the future. Right, right. Yeah, I know that absolutely makes sense. And there's a whole question, which I don't think we'll get into today, but there's a whole question of, you know, whether returning the money to shareholders in this way has actually 
been a good idea um yeah. you know i mean i know there are some people that think and carl icon who you mentioned earlier and others you know they want this because they hope it will increase the share price and of course apple share price has been pretty unpredictable over the last couple of years but arguably largely unaffected by you know buybacks and other things like that uh, much more affected by the standard stuff that share prices are affected by in terms of um you know trajectory growth trajectory and and you know guidance and all the rest of it and so you know, there is the argument to be made that, you know, Apple's returned all this money to shareholders in this way, but it hasn't actually moved the share price at all. And therefore, was it a good idea? And I think, you know, Apple's argument from the beginning wasn't, you know, we're trying to boost the share price, but we've got this money, we don't need it. So we're giving it back, basically. Um, so you could say, you know, they've done the right thing by shareholders to some extent, but it's a lot of money spent, quote unquote, by Apple that hasn't really done much for the, the share price itself. Yeah, I think it, the, the problem for Apple is if they even want to make that argument, they have to have a good alternative use of the money. Right. I, I mean, they, you know, it's. I, I totally agree with you. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of an effect this has actually had on Apple's share price. But what? But but if Apple sort of finishes this capital return program and says, "Eh, this really wasn't worth it," well, that's in comparison to whatever else they'd be doing with the money, and who knows what that is. They, they, right. They've got a lot of money to invest in more than any other company in history to invest in, in other businesses, other ways to grow the company. But, but I don't know where or how they would spend that much money. Yeah, I mean it's just such a huge amount of money that you know either enormous acquisitions. You know we've talked Netflix before, but you know only things of that sort of scale would put anything like a, a dent in the overall amount of cash that they have available. And you know they seem out of character for Apple, as we've also talked about before. Um, and then, you know, they're already spending massive amounts on R&D. It's the problem when a company gets as big as Apple is now, you know, even if it's spending a significant portion of its overall revenues on R&D, you know, if you're generating this much cash, you're just not going to use it up. And so I think it's going to continue to be a question about what, what Apple should do with this cash. That's right. Maybe they need to try to, like, invent cold fusion or something where they could use <laughs> enough of that money. There you go. Maybe they could give it to Google and have them spend it on their other bets that right. we talked about recently. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Aaron, for, for preparing all of that for us. Um, let's move on to our final topic, which is this uh, story this week about Apple being... Uh, issued with a court order uh, to compel it to assist the FBI in getting into an iPhone 5C that was used by one of the two shooters in the San Bernardino shooting in early December last year. Um, the Tuesday evening, the FBI obtained that court order. It was made public. Um, Apple responded within hours with a, a letter, a public letter, under over Tim Cook's signature on the Apple website explaining why it opposed the order and kind of laying out its stance on this kind of thing and where it could lead in general. Um, you know, I wrote something about this on Wednesday afternoon that was published on Thursday morning in my regular Tech Pinions column slot. Um, and the challenge was I wrote it Wednesday afternoon and by the time even our editor got to it on Wednesday evening, things had changed and moved forward. And by the time it was published on Thursday morning, that was even more the case. And so this is a story that continues to move. New stuff keeps coming out. Um, things that have been reported as fact are now being challenged and so on and so forth. So we'll discuss this as things stand on the morning of uh, Friday, February 19th. But, uh, you know, this is likely to continue to change. But Kind of what was your initial reaction to all of this, Aaron, when you saw the story come out? Well, um, as far as the FBI announcement, I, I kind of thought that this was an inevitable outcome. I mean, the way that intelligence agencies have been really trumpeting the, the, 
the risk of having all this encrypted data out there that they can't have access to for their intelligence purposes. I mean, they've been talking about this for years now, for a couple of years, saying that, look, companies need to stop you know, making this inaccessible to intelligence agencies. So I, I think a test case was an inevitable outcome. I think it, it, if you're the FBI, they couldn't have chosen a, a better one. Right. I mean, you know, they couldn't have chosen a better one that that set them up. And I know you talked about this um, in your article, but 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 this is, you know, it involves a terrorist. The suspects are dead so that they, you know, there's no civil rights violations on their behalf. Um, the phone is actually owned by an employer rather than by the suspects involved. I mean, this is this is all. Um, this is all a really nice setup as far as the FBI is concerned. Right, absolutely. It makes a very unsympathetic case for Apple to try to argue that somebody's rights are being violated or anything else. So it has to be purely on the principle of the thing, which is kind of what this comes down to. And part of the problem with this story has been the misreporting um, by so many different people about it. You know, it's this story in and of itself is not about encryption and yet a lot of people have talked about it as if it is and I did a radio interview earlier this morning and I was supposed to do another one later and um, you know they were saying you know is it possible for Apple to decrypt this phone and I said well it's not about encryption it's about you know unlocking the phone basically brute forcing the pass passcode on the phone um, and so you know the, the fact that it's technically complex doesn't help matters uh, but then you know the the theory if you like or the you know the the thinking behind Apple's stance here is complex as well because it isn't about just this case. It's about precedents, both legally and otherwise, um, that would be set if Apple were to kind of comply with this order. Um, and the fact that, you know, unlocking this phone means that Apple can do it and could be compelled to do exactly the same thing again. It means it could be asked to do more on certain newer phones that have the secure enclave and touch ID and so on, which Apple said, you know, through sources, although not publicly, you know, that it's possible to do the same kind of thing with newer phones. It's just harder. Um, you know, so there's that precedent there, but there's also the precedent, you know, the kind of the structure, if you like, of this particular request, which is Apple should be compelled to create software that would allow these agencies to get access to data that otherwise would be inaccessible. Um, and that sounds an awful lot like the same structure you'd use to compel them to build in a backdoor for encryption. And I think that's why ultimately they're they're rejecting this. I think the other side of this is that, you know, whether it's a legal precedent or not, once Apple has done this for a U.S security agency it could be compelled to do the same thing by overseas security agencies and as long as they're saying no to these requests in the u.s they can claim it's being consistent to do the same in say china or russia um, or india or any other country where you know they may not have as much confidence in the legal process and so i think it's simpler for apple simply to say no everywhere than to say yes in some places and no in others where they'd invite uh, criticism invites sort of bans from governments that are prone to do that kind of thing. Um, so there's that whole side of things too. So, you know, this is really a pretty simple case at the root of it, but very complex, both technically and in terms of the repercussions and the implications around all of this. Well, and I think the FBI knew that this had important uh, public opinion value. Um, it, it just broke yes, late yesterday, early today, that Apple actually had had asked the court to keep this legal matter secret, um, to keep it to, to to keep the 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 legal records on this sealed, 
mm-hmm. um, and the FBI actually opposed that. They wanted this to be publicly known that Apple was turning down this request um, because they want to bring public pressure to bear against Apple to make them give in. Um, right. You know, I and uh, there, obviously there have been politicians who have jumped on this, and I know that there's already been one bill by the Senate Intelligence Committee chair being written to make Apple and other companies in a similar situation comply in this regard. I, what's what makes me what, what I think frustrates me is when most is when those that are saying that these phones need that this phone needs to be decrypted. Is is they're they're taking a very one-sided approach to the issue, essentially saying if Apple doesn't do this, they do it to the detriment of U.S. security, failing to acknowledge all of the substantial costs that come on the other side. Um, right. You know, I think I think foreign governments being able to compel Apple in the same way is a really good example of this. The, the truth is, if you if you were to flip this story, right, and if you if this was the Chinese government compelling Apple to do this because it wanted to go after individuals that it considered criminals or terrorists um, or even just political dissidents, um, you know, I, I think most Americans would be cheering Apple on. Um, and, and that tells you that the principle is muddy here, right? If it's just a matter of who's asking instead of what right. they're asking, it tells you that the ethical value at stake here is, isn't totally clear in everybody's mind. And we need to have an understanding of why this matters. And, you know, if I, if I have an expectation of privacy on my phone and, and I can take these measures to protect it, not only from government, you know, investigation, but from intrusion by hackers, um, you know, why, why am I entitled to that when nobody else is, for example? Right. Right. And that's, that's the problem here is that the government's case rests on, well, we don't do that stuff. So it's okay for you to comply with our order. And this is kind of where my point just now gets to is like, then Apple has to make that argument elsewhere too. Like, well, China, no, we're not going to comply with your order because we don't trust your judicial process. You know, as long as it's a blanket no to anybody who's asking, then it's easy for Apple to say, sorry, China, but this is just our policy. But if it's you know, we don't trust your legal process, but we trust our you know own countries. And suddenly, it sets them up for big fights and and potentially you know negative consequences in those other countries too. Uh, and so it has to be a principle, uh, a matter of principle rather than a matter of sort of pragmatism in different individual situations. And I think this is why you know even though there have been reports, and again those have been somewhat disputed, but there have been reports that Apple has helped law enforcement agencies previously with some cases. You know, I think they're basically saying you know enough's enough. You know, we've got to sort of start to draw a line in the sand that says we won't go any further because we're worried this is getting into dangerous ground, which if we were compelled to do the same thing in other countries would be really worrisome. Well, and and those previous cases where Apple has helped have involved Apple extracting unencrypted information, not decrypting information. Cause, cause or by or allowing agencies to bypass the lock code. I mean, there's right. been cases where, you know, in past versions of iOS, you could plug a device in and pull certain information off the device without even having to have the passcode. And that's what's changing here is they're requiring Apple to create new software to essentially allow them to break into this device. There's an interesting free speech argument related to that because of this, the courts have previously interpreted the free speech, the First Amendment, to include the writing of code. 
that right. code is a form of speech just like any other form mm -hmm. of speech. And in this case, because unlike previous cases, in this case, they're actually compelling Apple by court order to write new code mm -hmm. to accomplish what the FBI speech. is asking for. Yeah, which is essentially compelled speech. And I think that's, I, I, I think that is definitely something that, because what's happening now is by doing that, you know, the FBI isn't just seeking information from a right. company like right. they would through a subpoena. In this mm -hmm. case, they are actually enlisting by compulsion a company to become part of the law enforcement apparatus. I mean, it's a right. very different. Uh, it's it's a very different outcome now than than what than the mm -hmm. other cases where Apple has helped law enforcement in the past, and and this idea of conscripting Apple into law enforcement activities. I think that also sets a dangerous precedent because um, th that would mean essentially all of us could be conscripted at any point to be extensions of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this isn't just deputizing people as marshals or sheriffs or whatever in the old American West. Right. right. <laughs> moved, yeah. on, moved on a bit since then. I, I um, mean, this so, is, this, you know, this is, I mean, I guess holding them at gunpoint is too strong of a metaphor, but, uh -huh. but, you know, threatening them with jail if they don't, you know. Well, that's, yeah, and I wanted to get to that because, you know, it's interesting. So Apple's hired Ted Olson, who's, you know, a very high-profile lawyer. I mean, he's yeah. the guy that represented George Bush in the Bush v. Gore um, election controversy, you know, back in uh, 2000, 2001. Um, you know, he was uh, then the Solicitor General in the Bush administration for a long time. He also uh, represented the opponents to Proposition 8 in California. You know, right. this is a guy who has a really high-profile, very well-respected lawyer, really a heavy hitter. And so Apple's taking this extremely seriously, but it also demonstrates Apple's taking the legal route here. You know, they're not sort yeah. of saying, we flatly refuse to do this. They're saying, we're going to exhaust all legal options to try to get this order overturned. The question becomes, what if they fail? Yeah. You know, what if the legal process runs its course? At that point what does Apple do? You know, do they say, okay, well, we tried and we failed and so we're going to go ahead with this or do they continue to refuse? Um, in which case, does somebody go to jail? You know, I mean, it gets really interesting if you think about how, how this goes if it's followed through to its logical conclusion. Especially now that you have a court without Scalia on it, <laughs> right? Since well, Justice well, and, Scalia and, passed away. I mean, the, the, the truth is on most of these civil, civil liberty cases that relate to, to law enforcement, um, there are often surprising alliances from the Supreme right. Court, because that's where it would ultimately be settled, is at the Supreme mm -hmm. Court or through mm -hmm. legislation by Congress. But at the Supreme Court level, a lot of those cases on civil liberty issues related to law enforcement, you get weird alliances and unexpected alliances because this isn't a clean-cut sort of conservative versus liberal issue. Right. And so I think it would be a hard case to predict, actually, if it went to the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. Right, absolutely. And, well, especially since it's 4-4. I, mean, it, I don't know what the rules are. If the Supreme Court's deadlocked at 4-4, I guess it gets bounced down to a lower court again. Yeah, basically, the lower um, court decision is preserved if, this, just if the Supreme upheld. Court can't right. work it out. Right. So, yeah, very interesting in that sense. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the prospect, and I think it was The Economist had an article where they talked about um, you know, the prospect of Tim Cook or some other Apple executive ultimately spending time in jail over this, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know how far-fetched that is, but ultimately a company refuses to comply with a court order. I assume there are those kinds of consequences and yeah. I don't know exactly who gets sent to jail in that situation. Ultimately the one making the decision, I guess, but, um, but yeah, really interesting to watch. And, you know, if Apple does eventually have to back down and comply with the order, what does that mean? You know, does that then has set the precedent that Apple's trying to avoid, you know, 
all this has stimulated a debate you know that Apple's been trying to have arguably for a year and a half about encryption specifically um, you know do we now have that debate you know regardless of the outcome of this specific case you know what is the outcome of that debate um, you know do we get legislation that protects Apple and other tech companies in situations like this do we merely prevent there from being legislation that compels Apple to uh, provide government backdoors and so on you know where does that end up and especially you know in this highly sort of politically charged environment that we're in right now where you know, political candidates weighing in on this stuff and you know that the the debate tends to be pretty simplistic and overly so most of the time as well you know how does that all go and and you know does that end well for apple ultimately i'm not sure it does necessarily so i'm worried about that i did think the specific um congressperson that you mentioned earlier was quite funny so we need a law to compel somebody to comply with a court order well like isn't that kind of <laughs> what the point of the court order is in the first place yeah. you know so some of the stuff that's being proposed just seems particularly funny to me but um you know i do worry that that the kind of debate and the the, the kind of uh, lawmaking process that we have in the U.S. at the moment doesn't necessarily lend itself to a great outcome here either. I think we should be grateful that this test case is one that involves less urgency than what could have arisen. I mean, the FBI could have said, we have the phone of a potential terrorist that may strike at any moment. And right. that would have obviously been um, a, a much harder situation for clear thinking. The nice thing now is that you know, the urgency is basically the deadline set by the court, but, you know, these dead terrorists aren't going to be killing anybody else. Um, I think the FBI's yeah. argument is that there might be associates or others who are at risk, but um, right. but there's luckily there's less scariness or urgency with this case, and so hopefully that means everybody involved can think a, li a little more clearly about it. Right. Right, absolutely. There's a lot more that we could talk about here, but I think uh, in the interest of time, we'll wrap up there. But uh, no doubt something that we'll continue to follow over the next few weeks as, as the court case continues. Uh, we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick, and this is where we take it in turns to recommend something that we've recently enjoyed or been using that we think our listeners might enjoy as well. Um, this week, my recommendation is a movie, and it's the movie Brooklyn, um, which came out a few months back. Um, my wife and I just finally recently had a chance to go see that in the movie theater um, and really enjoyed it. It was a really sweet film. If you don't know the story, very briefly, it's about an Irish girl in the 1950s, uh, 60s, can't remember exactly, um, who uh, leaves you know a, a situation in Ireland that feels like there's not a lot of prospects for her and, and is unable to go to the United States, gets a job, uh, goes to school, in the United States where there's more opportunities for her, feels very much a fish out of water, um, eventually starts dating an Italian-American boy. And uh, so that there's this wonderful scene. And actually, the New York Times has this whole scene uh, available on their website, so you can go watch it. But there's this great scene where she goes to have dinner with this Italian-American family. And you get all the cliches that both sides have about each other kind of come up and the younger brother of the boy that she's dating has a funny comment for which he gets in trouble. So um, that's a great thing to watch along with the trailer if you're interested in the movie. But it's just uh, it's coming out on iTunes and other similar services, I think, on the 23rd of this month. So next week. 
Um, so if you haven't had a chance to see that in the movie theaters, I recommend it. It's not something you want to see with little kids, largely uh, unobjectionable, but there's one scene that you, you wouldn't want them to see. Um, and uh, if you use uh, Aaron's recommendation from last week, Vida Angel, to watch it once it comes out, uh, then you might be able to skip that scene and maybe it would be more appropriate for, for at least younger teenage kids. But uh, anyway, that's my recommendation for this week. We thank you for being with us. We'll put links to some related content on the website as usual at podcast.com beyond devices and we look forward to being with you again next week